This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. It's Thursday time to talk cities. And I must say, it's been quiet this week, our first week without John Tory at the helm. And there is lots of news about transit in Toronto, much of it negative, I'm afraid. The number of violent incidents against passengers on the TTC in 2022 increased by 46% over the previous year, even though ridership was down. And according to a report from CEO Rick Leary, there were 145 violent incidents in December, making for a total of over a thousand in 2022, up from over 730 in 2021, 735 in 2020, and far fewer before the pandemic, 666 in 2019. And still with transit, the province is providing an extra $80 million for municipal transit, but that money is to be divided among 107 municipalities. Brampton is getting $16 million, York Region is getting $17 million, and I am not sure how much is going to Toronto. So, people, what do you think? 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now, it's time to tune into the town. And now I'd like to welcome David Crombie, former mayor of Toronto, Karen Stint, CEO of Variety Village and former city councillor, and Lauren O'Neill, senior news editor of Blog TO. Hi, everyone. Hi, Libby. Hi, Libby. Okay. Hi. Hi. So, uh, the first week without John Tory, David? Well, every. <laughs> Everybody who has an interest in the mayoralty, and that's most of the place, uh, it's City Hall, but they're, they're scheming, planning, trying to figure out what's happening because things had settled in with the after the last election, like, like always, at, with the mayor's elected, the council's elected, the bureaucracy begins to work with those, those who are there. There's a sort of style and pattern that begins, and now that's been unplugged uh, by, uh, uh, by the mayor's going. And so... Uh, it's a tragedy, obviously, for the mayor and his family, for the public. It, it, it means there's going to be some reordering of the public business by council, and that's why people are quietly trying to pay attention and figure it out, those who have an interest in it. And, uh, uh, David, do you think it changes priorities in terms of left-right or anything like that? Well, I think it can. I think the election will have, uh, the, the election itself of, of the of the new mayor will have uh, an impact on on the public, and the public will there have have some kind of impact on uh, on the council. And I think the leadership given by the new mayor will be different. I'm not sure how different, because we don't know who that is yet. But yes, p- patterns will begin to change, and people will try and figure out which issues are, are more important than others. There will be a reordering, of, of perhaps, of, of, uh, of people's understanding of what's really important to them. Housing will still be big and important, of course. And, 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 and other issues that, that were there before, but there may, might be a reordering in terms of their importance in the, in the hierarchy of discussions. Karen? Yeah, so I think, well, you know, John Tory was the target of, of course, the opposition because he was the sitting mayor. And so he was the target for the strong mayor system. He was the target for his budget. He was the target for, you know, anything deemed to be going wrong in the city. Um, now that he's not there... Um, again, who is like, there's no target. Um, Jennifer McKelvey is not the target. She's a reasonable, pragmatic, responsible deputy mayor, but, you know, filling in uh, for the time being, she's a caretaker. So I, I think it will be quiet, uh, as David said, until the next mayor gets elected. That doesn't mean that there isn't scheming and maneuvering and jockeying, but it's not the, there's, because there's no target anymore, um, there's nowhere to really, you know, take out, you know, that 
that position. And, um, and no one's going to fill the void in the interim because everybody knows an election's coming. Well, it's, it's interesting, <clears throat> at least following media on this. So uh, last week, we had Doug Ford weighing in saying, if you get a, quote, lefty mayor, it'll be a disaster. And then just today, I saw an editorial, uh, obviously, in the star that said, you know, we've tried conservative mayors and it doesn't work. So, Lauren, what do you think? Do you think this changes the political dynamic? I mean, Jennifer McKelvey is a caretaker, and she was a strong ally of John Tory, which I'm assuming meant she was some kind of uh, red Tory. I mean, the way I see it right now is that we're in some sort of weird mayorless limbo. Um, Deputy Mayor McKelvey is, as Karen said, kind of a caretaker. She's overseeing operations, but she's also expressed that she will not be running for mayor. She doesn't appear to have any aspirations to become the new mayor. So she's just kind of overseeing things. And I think that's kind of why it's been quiet right now. I think that there could definitely be some things bubbling under the surface. Um, Councilors talking amongst themselves, candidates talking amongst themselves. But I I mean, and I've also understand that it could be until summer before we see the by-election. It could be at least a few months. So I think we're going to be in this kind of awkward place for a bit where McKelvey is kind of just overseeing operations as they've been laid out to run by Tory. And until we get a new mayor elected, there's not going to be that much kind of political squabbling because there's, like Karen said, there's no target right now. Uh, David, in terms of timing, um, we know that uh, it's going to be a while before the election, but uh, the only really declared candidate so far as Gil Peñalosa. Uh, is there an advantage to all these other councillors being coy, or are they just trying to get their ducks in a row? Well, I, I don't think they're being coy just to be coy. I think that if you're really trying to seriously launch a campaign, you have to, first of all, figure out what your chances might be, then see if you can get the resources to, be, to do what you think you want to do. So I think there's serious thinking going on. Bear in mind, this is the largest, probably the largest by-election of any at any level of government involving that number of people um, in, in the history of the country. Uh, we, so we've never had anything quite this large in a, in a by-election of this order. So it's a new thing. And I think that's why it's taking a little more time than people were expecting to organize from City Hall. We won't have it before June, that's for sure. They're saying that might even be in the early summer. Um, so it's a, it's a big deal and it's a big deal if you're a candidate. So although you may have lots of hopes in your breast, you have to figure out in your head what you think you can do with it. There will be more candidates that are already out there talking about it. Uh, Anna Bilal and, and, uh, and Bradford and, uh, and, uh, Josh, uh, Matlow. Uh, there are others. And, and I, so far, I don't see any great ideological differences between them. There may well be subtle and important subtle differences but but I think um, in fact I think in, in a, at another level government all three of them are are, are liberal members of the liberal party oh and I forgot Blake Acton <laughs> so yeah yeah, yeah Sorry, he ran yeah. the last time too so um, I don't want to get a call from Blake saying you forgot me uh, so that that will uh, take a while I'm what is it does anybody know these days what does it cost to run a municipal campaign? I've seen estimates all over the place, but upwards of millions of dollars. I, I'm sure Karen and David would know much more about this than me. Since yeah, the funding is based on per, per, per voter. So you get an allocation per voter, and I can't remember what it is, and I don't know what it'll be for this election. But it also assumes a campaign period much longer than what we're seeing. And so given the condensed campaign cycle, um, you know, it, I don't know that any candidate's going to be able to raise and spend a million dollars in the time frame available to them. And again, that office hasn't been declared vacant yet, so candidates can't register. And then there's a nomination period. So I think, you know, to the question earlier, you know, why isn't anyone putting their hand up? Well, nobody wants to be the target prematurely, and um, they haven't even registered to run yet. You know, Jill Penaloza has declared his intent, but he's not a target for anything. You know, he was just the alternative to Tory on the last election. I don't think he's a real contender um, in this race, but, you know, campaigns matter and anything can happen. Um, but I also would say that, uh, you know, Tory was a conservative in name only. Like he, yeah. he wasn't, yes. a, he, he wasn't a conservative. So I, I don't think that's a fair editorial for the starter, right? Well, I, I would agree with that. 
And uh, towards the end, I not only would I say he's not a conservative, I'd say he was woke. Hundred percent. Okay, let's uh, move along to the TTC. So we have uh, confirmed by numbers what we all knew is this scourge of violence on the TTC. And when you look at the numbers, it's like definitely gone up during the pandemic, uh, but gone up especially in the last year. Uh, David, and we heard about some new funding. I have not teased out how much Toronto is getting from that money, but um, it's probably not that much. Uh, w- what do you make of that, David? Well, I, I think it's, I have to say it, I, I, I don't know everything you should, I should know about it before I offer this opinion, but I do use the TTC on a regular basis. And, and I think I can say that that um, people are, feel, I feel at any rate, that they're a little more cautious. They're standing a little more closer to the wall when they're waiting for the subway train. Um, and I just think people are, are are clearly more nervous than I noticed before. I hate to say that, but that's what I get, the impression I get. Well, as well, they should be more nervous. Well, I, I agree that all the all we've got to go with are, are, are the reports that come through media, and, and there's no doubt that the the, the incidents of, uh, the, of of a number of uh, of uh, a number of incidents have caused the, the concern that's out there. People are now feeling it, um, and, and that, that once you get a sense of uh, of uh, trepidation, it's not easy to get rid of. And so I think it's it's doing harm, and we need to do whatever we can as fast as we can to fix it. Karen, what can be done? I mean, these numbers, they're from Rick Leary. Yeah, no, it's real. Um, the, uh, the perception that David was talking about is real. And so the number one thing we have to do, and I don't, I'm not, I don't think it should be controversial, is make sure that there is no more fare evasion. Period. End of story. You cannot be on the TTC unless you pay your fare. The TTC cannot be used as a place for homeless the homeless to shelter, and for drug addicts to, to be using their drugs. It's just not acceptable. So I'm not suggesting that we ignore that issue. We need to deal with that issue. But the TTC is not the place for that to happen. And so, and the reason that we need to crack down on fare evasion is because the TTC is for people who are commuting, who are trying to get from A to B, who are willing to pay a fare to get there. And unfortunately, if they are no longer willing to pay that fare then the TTC will enter into a death spiral. And it, that's something we cannot afford to happen in the city. So first and foremost, you know, every station needs to be monitored with someone who is checking to make sure that the people pay their fare. Um, we need to have a strategy for the buses to make sure that people on the buses are paying their, 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 their fare. And we need to build confidence back that the TTC is actually a place that you can go to use to get from A to B. Uh, you know, I just heard the TTC spokesperson, Stuart Green, saying, we are compassionate. We would never send someone back into the cold. I mean, I kind of understand that. How can you say otherwise, right? But I think Karen has a really good point in perhaps having guards and workers at the doors monitor more closely who is boarding transit or going down into the subway platforms without paying. I also understand, and we've seen this a lot over the past little while, uh, that TTC employees are being attacked. So, I mean, they might be decently paid, whatever it is, but it might not be worth it to someone who's got a family at home or whatever to go and confront someone who, I mean, there was someone uh, a couple, like last week, two weeks ago, slashed a woman in the face with a machete. Like, I think that's pretty terrifying for a TTC worker to go down and, and confront and be like, hey, you didn't pay your fare. Um, so I, I don't, it, it's hard to turn people out into the cold, but at the same time, yeah, people are hesitant to ride. A recent Nanos poll, I think, um, found that 71% of people in Ontario in February were now more apprehensive about riding public transit than they were one year ago. And it makes sense. Like the Toronto Police Service issues these news releases every day. And I've never, ever seen so many about subway and streetcar and bus attacks coming so in such succession. There were 17 within the last month alone. And my friends and I always, people always ask me about this because I write about it a lot. They're like, why the face? There are so many face slashings, face stabbings. I, I don't know what that is or why, but... Maybe because it's a sensational kind of headline, a lot of people report on it, so people get the impression that if you go on the TTC, you're going to get stabbed in the face. 
It just isn't necessarily true at all. Lots of people <laughs> ride the TTC without getting their face. Uh, yes, many, uh, many. I'm going to take a call from Crystal in Toronto. Hi, Crystal. Hi, how are you? I'm fine. Go ahead, Crystal. You're on the air. So I have the pleasure of seeing it from both sides. I was a TTC employee for seven years on the front line. I was a bus operator, and then I went down to collectors, and I also ride the TTC frequently um, commuting to and from work. Um, that 60% increase, I don't know if it includes the assaults on employees as well, because those numbers, in my opinion, should be much higher. They do um, not. Uh, Crystal, my reading of the numbers is that they're just uh, uh, violent incidents involving passengers. Okay. And I mean, like I said, there's a lot, even by passengers that don't, that, or that go unreported because everyone's too afraid. And when it comes to the employees, they're not allowed to speak up in public about the incidences that happen to them without being reprimanded. Um, there is a lot of work that needs to be done, and I agree with a lot of the points that you have all made. Um, I was actually assaulted at work for asking someone not to do drugs within the system, and that's what had me leave the TTC because my daughter, who was four or five at the time, she even said to me, Mommy, I don't want you to go to work because that's where the bad people are. Wow. And for a four or five-year-old to pick up on that, that was when I knew I needed to get out. And I mean, the assaults happen daily. Like I see it happen with public on my way in. I have a friend who was currently assaulted three times this week inside the station they work at. And the TTC is forcing the collectors inside the subway stations to stand outside of the booths because they want that front facing customer service. Hmm. Crystal, I'm I'm sorry to hear about your experience, but but thank you for telling us about it. We appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. Like I said, there's just a lot that goes unreported and that a lot of people don't know. And it's sad that it has taken, um, like within the last few months, because this is where I've seen the most increase, like all of this to happen for people to start being active about it. And I know Rick Leary says there's a lot that's being done. I personally just think that's a lot of lip service from him to try and make people feel safe. I would believe it once I start actually seeing the changes. Okay, Crystal, thank you very much for that. Uh, and, um, yeah, I mean, from the horse's mouth, what can I say? Um, powerful story. Power, powerful story. And, yeah, when your five-year-old tells you, Mommy, I don't want you to go to work, it's pretty tough. I would imagine. Yeah, it's, um, I mean, it's, it's a really tough situation because on, on the one hand, we did, uh, hear from former Mayor John Tory that he was, there were going to be more police on the TTC and there's pushback to that. And the pushback to that kind of appeals to the quote woke constituency where they say, Oh, but there are so many people who, uh, the, the police scare us. So don't put them there. Uh, and I don't know, but it seems to me that a lot of city authorities kind of, you know, uh, bow to that. I would say, like, as a person who would be considered quite woke, I, I would consider myself a woke person. I'm millennial. And, I you know, I, but I... I yes, I, I would comes, consider yeah, you woke, I'm too. Quite woke, but I, there comes to a point where, no, I don't think that police should be able to abuse their authority, of course, and I don't think that all of them, or even many of them would. <laughs> Uh, it, this is becoming a, a issue of public safety. I would be happy to see a police officer on my streetcar if I boarded a streetcar, which I am too afraid to do right now because I report every day on people getting assaulted on streetcars. Um, and, and so I think it's going to take decades upon decades to fix the social issues that are driving this surge in violence. It's going to take a really long time and um, there needs to be work done. But in the interim, like... You can criticize police being on public transit, but this is where a lot of high-profile crime is happening, and a lot of people need public transit to get to work. People who don't have cars, people who don't live within uh, walking or cycling distance of work, like it, it's a, it's a really vital service. Obviously, so, yeah. So I, I mean, people I think might have been criticizing it at first. There might have been some people who have changed their tune because of, you know, you need some sort of 
uh, protection, I guess. Well, uh, David, yeah, so, sorry, let, I just want to ask David, do you think what Karen said is, is too harsh or is that a solution? No, no. You, uh, crystal solution or Karen? Sorry, Karen. Karen said, oh, Karen. Uh, Karen said no people on the TTC who haven't paid the fare. No, no, I, I think I, Karen, Karen, uh, Karen's got it. I think that's a, there should be no tolerance for it. I, I, I understand what other people are saying, but we cannot allow the TTC to be a victim of all of that. It's too important to us. So uh, I, the idea of having community policing on the on the on the uh, uh, on the TTC does not bother me. It may be it may mean that we have to retrain uh, officers in the community service business to be community police. I think we've not done the work we should have done to have community policing done in a way that is welcome in the community rather than the community being afraid. So, but do, 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 should we have a zero tolerance for it in some way? Absolutely. Karen's right. Karen, uh, so people here think you're right, but do you think that the TTC is swayed by, again, this other agenda and the people who say that, that, that uh, police uh, uh, threaten them and all of that? Well, again, there's ways to do it. You know, I was in London in September and, you know, every single subway entrance had a security personnel there making sure people paid their fares. And it was just, it was just no nonsense. It wasn't, it wasn't hard hearted. It was like, no, if you want to ride the system, you pay your fare. If you need to be warm, then you can go to a warming center. So it's not, it it wasn't, it's not considered a harsh approach. It's just considered good management. And so I can't speak to how the TTC might feel them, like whether they feel supported in that approach, whether they feel they could even bring that approach forward. And, you know, the whole idea that we would never turn someone away who needed a warm place. I'm not suggesting they don't get a warm place, but I'm insisting that it's not the TTC unless they pay their fare. And until we feel comfortable to say that and support that through meaningful actions, there will be this trepidation to take those steps. And, and that's what we're in now. And to, I think David summed it up brilliantly. We cannot be a victim to the social ale. The TTC cannot become the next victim to the social ale. We need to fix the social ale, but we need to address the system right now as it is and the concerns that are real. And actually think about the 71% of those who won't ride it anymore. And, and is the T, so, I mean, is the bottom line that the TTC is or is becoming the victim? Of all of this. I, I mean, like Karen said earlier, it, it, we're looking at a death spiral of ridership, of of uh, fare coming in. And, and it's not just people experiencing homelessness, looking for warmth, who are evading fare either. Like there are a lot of really hardworking people who are honest and pay their fare every day. And then we see these ads from the TTC showing people evading fare. And, and you hear about teenagers just en masse jumping over the turnstiles. And and so I think that emboldens people in some ways too. To sure like, it does. Well, yeah, if it they're matter. not paying, why should I? Exactly. And that's really going to hurt our public transit system in the long run. Hmm. I mean, it already is. And uh, so uh, our portion, whatever it may be of this 80 million bucks, is is that going to go any way to helping this, Karen? No, it's not a drop in the bucket. Because if, if Peel is getting 16 and York is getting seven, <laughs> that's already half of it. <laughs> so I'm not really even sure what that announcement is all about. Uh, it's it's about the Ford government announcing uh, stuff <laughs> is what it's about. But they and they they did collect some testimonials from some of the mayors. So Patrick Brown thanked them for the 16 million and uh, uh, the the regional chair of uh, of York region and even uh, Jim Diodati in Niagara Falls. I'm not sure how much he's getting. I think it's less than a million. But uh Wow. I didn't. I didn't see Jennifer McKelvey's name there, though. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for nothing. <laughs> so as we uh, go forward to the next week, David, do you think we'll get more clarity about who's in the race, or is that going to take more time? Well, it's going to take a little more time, not much. They, they, they I think uh, by McKelvey the other day uh, saying that it's not going to be till June. I think that gives a little more time. But no, they're already out doing serious. Uh, undercover work, as it were, uh, work that needs to be done before they put their name out there. Uh, if, if you're a serious candidate, it's a lot of organization, a lot of talk to other people, get other people's views, and so on. So um, I, I, I would not be surprised. There will be with, with, within ten days. I think we'll have 
probably a clearer idea, uh, the media will start digging around and getting statements. It'll get a little more focused within about 10 days to two weeks. Yeah. Uh, Karen, is there anyone you'd like to see jump in or who do you think will jump in next? Um, pretty, well, I think we're going to see the, um, you know, the exploratory announcements. You know, I've put together an exploratory committee to, you know, see if my candidacy is viable, that kind of thing, which is the pre-announcement to the announcement when you can announce it. <laughs> and we're, all, we're already hearing some rumors about Mark Saunders doing that. And uh, so I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, Brad and Anna follow suit. Um, I actually don't think Josh Matlow is going to enter the race because I don't think he has enough institutional support. Um, uh, but you never know. He's he was one to surprise. Well, um, he 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 was elected with the bl- biggest plurality, which mm-hmm. I actually find a little surprising because I'm on my ratepayers group in his ward. Uh, right. <clears throat> though you know he's totally fine to deal with. I'm not saying anything bad, but I know that others he does not play well with others. <laughs> He does not play well with others, and I think he takes pride in that. And I think while that makes him a very good local councillor, it doesn't equip him well to be mayor. Uh, Yeah. And Mark Saunders, I mean, I think he was an excellent police chief, but I don't think he really likes people hanging around (laughs) with people. I mean, that, that has me a little bit mystified because unless we're looking for the total opposite of John Tory, who was at everything all the time, I mean, am I I wrong? Am I misjudging him? (laughs) I I think that part of that might have been a front he put up as the chief of police, you know, a strong kind of... But even when he ran, he ran for um, to be an MPP and he lost. He's like, just, you know, not everybody is an extrovert. Yeah, no, I definitely... um, I think he seems like a really smart and diplomatic individual. I, I don't know if I see him as mayor, but um, I mean, I know nothing about the, the political, the municipal political system compared to David and Karen. I want to know if David Crombie or Karen Stintz would ever consider running for mayor. <laughs> She's oh, pretty. I'm, uh, I'm offering to run for cover. Sorry? <laughs> run for, he said he wants to run for cover. Oh. <laughs> Should we have so, a draft David movement? I, no, but I remember I remember Karen being at a number of meetings, and I would I would admire watching her off from the stage running for mayor. But one thing about Karen is that it, it's always clear to me what where she stands and what she stands for. Karen, I want you to know Thank that you. I voted for you back then, and I would vote Thank for you, you if you vote now, if you run now. So, so Karen, are you thinking about it? Oh, no, no. Are you kidding? I just six months ago recovered from the last mayoral election I ran for. Okay, we'll, we'll have to give up the draft care movement then. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're going to let that one go. Okay, we're going to let that one go. Until next week, thank you so much, David Crombie, Karen Stintz, and Lauren O'Neill. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank Bye-bye. you. Bye-bye. Thank you. Okay, we are taking a break. And when we come back, uh, just what, an hour ago, we heard there is a deal between the province and the federal government, the new health care deal. It's got some actual new money in it. We'll talk about it when we come back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Zneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Ottawa and Queen's Park have a new health care deal. It is among the very first of the bilateral deals the federal government is working out. And it features nearly $8.5 billion over a decade and $776 million right away for the so-called shared health care priorities. And uh, that is what was under discussion, that there had to be some strings attached. And these include improving pediatric hospitals, hospitals, emergency rooms, and surgery wait times. So uh, what do you think? Is this going to solve our problems? 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now I'm joined by Ontario NDP MPP, Francelina. She is the health critic for her party. Welcome, France. How are you? I'm very good. How are you, Libby? I'm fine, thanks. Uh, so uh, we have a deal. Is that a good thing? Well, uh, we knew that it had to come. The sooner it comes, the better, so that we have more time to plan, uh, so that we can use this money wisely. So um, it had to come. The sooner, the better. It's done. 
to uh, you're talking about uh, the money coming, and one of the things that I always marvel at is that, especially with the federal government, they make a big announcement about a lot of money, and then months and months later, we hear from some provincial authority that the money has not arrived. Checks in the mail. Uh, checks in the mail. I I agree. It happens lots at all level of government. <laughs> it happens lots at the provincial level. Also makes announcement, and then I check with the hospital months later, and they still haven't received it. Uh, but for the seven and seven seven hundred and seventy six million dollars, uh, we're expecting this before the end of the year, which is before March thirty first. Uh, so um, that it should help. Uh, greatly. Okay. I, and emergency rooms. I mean, we've had this terrible situation where we've seen emergency rooms closing. I don't ever recall that happening before, even though as long as I have been a reporter, crisis and emergency room has been a story, but I don't recall them ever having to close. You're absolutely right. It had happened in some small rural hospitals. They would close for 24 hours, and that was a big story. This year, over 4,000 hours of close in areas like Chelsea, weeks at the time where uh, people did not have access to emergency room. Right, right here, downtown Toronto, uh, emergency rooms have closed, uh, and it's always the same. They do not have uh, sufficient staff, uh, nurses and physicians mostly, uh, to keep them open. And uh, I have never seen this. I've been in healthcare for since 1980, <laughs> for 43 years, and I have never seen that. And and do you think that that will be able to address it in a, any kind of reasonably timely way? I mean, money is one thing, but then you have to get the person to take the money. Uh, you hit the nail on the head. Right now, a huge part of the crisis in our healthcare system, it's because uh, nurses, physiotherapists, lab techs, uh, respiratory therapists, etc., they feel disrespected by by the province. They have given us like 110% for the last three years of the pandemic. It was hell going to work in a hospital, but they did it every single day, no matter how hard it was. And you will remember Bill 124, where they <laughs> capped their wages at 1%. Um, the court says it was unconstitutional. The Ford government is bringing that to uh, in appeal, spending millions of dollars in legal fees rather than letting nurses bargain. Yeah, but, can... but, Foss, that, that deal expires in about a month. Uh, yes, but they are human beings. Human beings need to feel value. They need to feel respected. And, and when you work really hard, when you're discouraged, and then you feel that that nobody respects you. It's kind of the drop that puts you over. Uh, Libby, I get almost every day, mostly at night, a nurse calling me. Most of the time, she'll cry on the phone. She'll say, I know my patient needs me. I know my colleagues need me. I know that we've been working short for the last, every shift, we're short nurses, but I can't take it anymore. I, I, I have to go home. I have to take a break. And then when I, you know, I talk to them and say, take care of yourself. You need to look after yourself if you need to look after us. And then they always bring back, they feel disrespected by the government. They feel like they're not valued. And this is kind of the drop that puts them over. Show them some respect. They're human being. Acknowledge that the last three years were really tough, that they toughed it through, that we're happy for the work that they've done and that we will respect them. But the government is never willing to say that. So money alone is not going to solve uh, the health worker shortages. Uh, what about the surgery wait times? Uh, I know that your party is very leery of the solution that the government is coming up with. Uh, but, uh, you know, when I talk to uh, people, uh, hospital people, doctors, you know, they're, they're hopeful that this will provide some kind of solution. And, um, 
we had the health minister say that they are going to ensure that no one ends up having to wait because they only want the the procedures that are covered. Uh, what do you say to that? I mean, I'm I'm talking about the Ontario Medical Association, the Hospital Association, and and various you know prominent doctors that I talk to a lot. They all seem to be saying, yeah, okay. <laughs> well, I can tell you that we have nothing against care in the community. The Ontario Hospital Associations put out a really good argument that they could run surgical suites in the community that concentrated on the easy cases that could be done quickly and that can go home right away. And uh, the staff would rotate, would have a week of steady days, Monday to Friday in the community, and then come back and do the, sh- the night shift, the weekends, the statutory holidays and the evening shift and all of this. And that was great. But that's not what we got. What we got is that uh, the private, for-profit, investor-owned corporations will build and own the surgical suites. They will hire their own staff. Think about it. As a nurse, yeah, you have a choice to work Monday to Friday in a surgical suite that only handle easy cases, or you could work night shift, evening shift, weekends, and statutory holidays in a hospital that will handle the, the hard cases. What would you pick? But, France, there's there's nothing in there that would, as a matter of fact, that's one of the things that, that some of the doctors I speak to raised, is that it looks like something that uh, hospitals could be part of, and there's nothing really stopping them from making an application to do just that. All right. You're not quite exact. Uh, the bill, the changes, this existed already. So if this is what they wanted to do, they did not need to introduce a new bill. We have hospitals right here, right now, that have built, right here in Toronto, that have built surgical suites. Uh, we have Women's Health Hospital uh, that only does uh, same-day surgery. Uh, if they had intention of having hospital apply, we did not need a new bill. Hospital can already do this. The new bill is to, Bill 60, it's called, it's to allow private, for-profit, investor-owned corporations to open up new surgical suites. This is the only reason for the bill. Hospital can open surgical suites whenever they have the money to do that. Right. But the, uh, I'm, I mean, the, what was being put forward is maybe hospitals in partnership and that kind of no. thing. No, no, you're wrong there. This is what the hospital wants, and they're still pushing really hard that they want to be partner. They don't want to lose their staff. They know that somebody who has, who's being offered a Monday to Friday day shift versus night shift, statutory holidays and weekend, they know that their nurses are going to do to this, to go to the steady days, um, weekdays. They know that. Uh, so they want to be partners. It is not in the bill. It is not feasible. What is in the bill is that a physician will have to have privilege in a hospital. That's it. The staff will be hired by the private for-profit investor-owned corporation to work day shift in their facilities that they will build. They will invest millions of dollars to build those surgical suites because they know full well that they can guarantee their investor double-digit return on investment. We're not talking 10, 11%. We're talking 25, 28% every single year. And and where have you seen that? We saw this because um, there's a really, really strong body of evidence that have studied what happened when we have a single-payer, publicly funded healthcare system, and then the care is delivered by private for-profit investor-owned corporation. It has been studied to death. Go on the Canadian Doctors for Medicare uh, policy primer, and they will show you all of the myths and all of the reality. Uh, it was tried in Australia. It was tried in the UK. It, is, it has been tried and studied um, in many, many countries. It's always the same. Um, the, um, the private, for-profit, investor-owned corporations find ways to make money on the back of sick people. Okay, um, we've got to wrap things up. Uh, you started off by being optimistic about this new deal. Uh, is, uh, is that the bottom line on it? The, 
um, I would have wished that the uh, federal government would have said, uh, you know, you need to protect the tenets of Medicare in. They did not do that. Uh, but at least uh, more resources will help uh, for sure. Okay. On that note, we wrap things up. Thank you so much, France Jelina. Bye-bye. You're always welcome. Bye-bye. Okay. We are taking another break. And when we come back, are you worried about your finances? How much time do you spend worrying about your finances? Well, uh, there's yet a new poll that has actually quantified that. Uh, and it's quite a bit of time for most people. And who can blame them with the way inflation is and the cost of everything going up so much? So we will want to hear from you. 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740 when we come back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Zneimer on Zoomer Radio. Uh, Welcome back. Do you worry about your finances? How much do you worry? Scotiabank, or at least their pollsters, have quantified it. On average, we spend 15 hours a week fretting about paying our bills, paying off debt, and saving enough for the future. And that's up about 50% from last year when apparently... We only spent 10 hours worrying. So what about you? Are you worried about it? Uh, do you have to figure out how uh, you're going to make everything, uh, uh, you know, get paid on time? Uh, do you have to rob Peter to pay Paul? The number's to call, 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. Forty, and now let's go to Leslie Ann Scorgi, the founder of MeVest, which is a company specializing in money coaching for Canadians. Hi, Leslie Ann. How are you? I am great and totally shocked by how many hours we are spending each week fretting about our finances. I didn't even realize we were at ten hours last year per week, and now we're at fifteen. So. In my opinion, what I'm seeing in my community is, is absolutely agreeing with this new study from Scotiabank. People are feeling uncomfortable and they're spending a lot of time, sometimes even, you know, sleepless nights thinking about how they're going to make ends meet. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, we, we've heard so much about food insecurity and increased use of food banks, uh, and, uh, increased use of food banks among people who have jobs and who are working and presumably making money, but not enough. Uh, and, uh, people don't be shy. I just saw people who were, you know, thinking about calling in here on the board, uh, 416-360-0740, toll free 1-866-740-4740. 40, uh, we're talking about worrying about money and how to stop worrying about money. Now, is it a matter that perhaps people are not organized? They, uh, haven't, you know, set down a budget. They may not know exactly how much is in, how much goes out. And is, is that, you know, one of the sources of problems? Yeah, you're definitely driving at one of my first tips, which is to get clear on what is coming into your household in terms of income and what is leaving your household. So one of the challenges I find my students going through is they have not uh, actually taken a close look. Instead, they're actually worried about what they think might be going on. And nine times out of 10, what they think is going on is much, much worse than what is really, really going on. But you can only, you know, make peace with that once you take a close look. So I call this, uh, ostriching. <laughs> that is a, that is a term I use where we sometimes put our heads in the sand and we don't rise up to take a look around. But when our heads are in the sand, we really can't see clearly. So the, the action around this is quite quite straightforward. Um, you know, pick your favorite budgeting template, even pen to paper if that's you. And you're going to take, a, you know, an inventory of all the income coming in. So from all the sources and every known expense that you have, when you're having that moment with those expenses and you're you're thinking about, gosh, that seems like a lot, um, it, it probably is a lot. And 
the act of actually writing this stuff down or putting it in a spreadsheet is often enough to trigger ideas around how to maybe shave down some costs, be a bit more mindful. If you are, you know, dealing with um, food insecurity right now, are there ways that you could uh, cut down some of the grocery costs or make use of, of um, you know, like late in the day services where you can pick up discounted groceries late in the day? Um, you know, uh, Leslie, it's, it's interesting because I know of people, including some friends of mine that actually had that experience where they were all worried. And when they actually figured out what was going on, it was not nearly as bad as they thought it was. I'm going to take a call from Jack in Brampton. Hi, Jack. Hi. Just a, a short point. The Consumer Protection Association or the uh, organization that is supposed to protect us, what are they doing? The profits are unheard of. For the Enbridge gas is double what it was last year. Um, the oil companies are making a fortune. The grocery stores are making a fortune. And there's nobody there to uh, to protect us. So they might as well close their offices and go to Florida. Okay, Jack, thanks for that. Uh, and uh, the CEOs of the big grocery companies have been summoned to Parliament Hill specifically because the last time grocery profits were being looked into, they sent their underlings, and that didn't go over very well. So apparently uh, they will be called to account. What happens from that, uh, I don't know. I'm not holding my breath. But uh, uh, they will uh, at least have to show up and give an account of themselves. Let's go to Bill in Toronto. Hi, Bill. Yeah, well, as far as the oil companies go, anybody that's had money invested in oil over the last 10 years has taken a real beating. So if they're making a profit right now, good on them. And the other thing, as far as Loblaws goes, I own Loblaws stock, and they're not, uh, their dividends aren't going through the roof. But my real concern is with, you know, a young family. I think back when I had two kids, my wife was staying at home looking after them. And I saw a thing today that said uh, rent was up 6%. Owning a car, the cost of operating it was up 13%. Food was up 12%. And I'm thinking, you know, people, these young people with kids and young families, they must just be taking a real beating. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's even people with young families who have two very strong incomes. It's not easy. Well, yeah, and then you look at their mortgages. I mean, if they didn't play the mortgage market right, they could be paying an extra $900 a month in their mortgage now. Do you, Bill, do you worry about your finances, or do you have kids who do? <laughs> well, you know, Libby, actually, I do. I spend at least four hours a day dealing with my finances because I tend to trade stock, but it's it's for a good reason, not a bad reason. But you know, one thing, one takeaway from this is what's planted in my mind is, a couple of, a few guys, we get together and go out for breakfast, and it costs like $16, $17 to get bacon and eggs, and you throw in a tip. Yeah. And every time I leave, and I go, you know what, I probably could have done that at home for about $3.50. So, yeah, I don't know, I'm, I'm starting to think. But it costs more if you're going to, if you're going to, if you're going to have the guys over for bacon and eggs. I'll do it. (laughs) And how are you going to keep it all hot while you make all those eggs? Anyway, Bill, thanks for that. I give that to my wife and to all women because I can never get it all together. Sexist. Oh, oh. (laughs) okay. Uh, Yeah, I mean, the the cost of eating out is huge. And it's one of the things that certainly before the pandemic, we did really a lot eating out and takeout um, is is really expensive and it depends on, you know, what's going on. That's somewhere you could cut back. And I know that for years, the old saw, because I was a money reporter for quite a long time, the old saw was like, you know, cut out the coffee at work, which cost at that point, it was probably $3. Now it's five or $6. Um, I know that there are some days when I say, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm going across the street to get a $6 coffee <laughs> because, because I better do that before anybody tries to talk to me. But, but, uh, all those things, uh, which are, I guess, tiny little luxuries, but boy, do they add up, Leslie. 
They sure do. And you'll get a kick out of this, Libby. The last time, like, I, I like to treat myself to a coffee once a week, and it's a fancy coffee. And the last time I went, it wasn't $6. It was $7. So I think what we're finding right now is that uh, individuals, uh, whether wherever they are, if they have families that are young, if they're, um, you know, in retirement, they are making different choices. They're choosing to do more at home meal preparation. They are making different decisions about where they are shopping. So a lot of, um, you know, demand for the lower cost grocery stores. Um, and, and these are the stores that have, you know, less of the bells and whistles. So you're seeing some of that pivot start to happen. And it's, it's actually a very a good response, I think. Uh, consumers are responding and they're saying, you know what? We can't handle these big price tags anymore. And so we have to make changes. Yeah, well, and, and the other thing um, in terms of the high cost of groceries is is the meal planning thing. So, Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And if, if you're not a meal planner, I think that possibly this high inflationary period that we're in has made you a meal planner. So we do know food waste is a big contributing factor to money literally being kind of lit on fire and out the door. And what we know is that households right now are throwing out between $80 and $120 per month worth of food. So if that is you, this is kind of your cue to get on... I, get on top of a meal plan. Now, I uh, people who follow me on Instagram know I like to cook. Uh, uh, it's like a hobby. It relaxes me. And I hate wasting food, uh, mm-hmm. probably because that's the way I grew up. My parents went through the war. And so one thing I did this week, and I have to, I mean, I'm, I'm patting myself on the back a bit, but I, I don't waste a lot of food. It, sometimes it drives my husband crazy because he has to save little bits of things. So on, I think it was Sunday night, we had some really nice and probably fairly expensive fresh fish and we didn't eat all of it. And the next day uh, I pulled like one piece out of the freezer. I took what we had already cooked and I made fish chowder, which was delicious and probably would have cost Mm -hmm. 20 bucks in a restaurant. I mean, I had frozen corn and uh, a little bit of broth and, and, you know, whatever. Uh, So uh, that's the kind of thing where you can make one meal that's a little bit pricey go for two. You know what, Libby, you and I have many things in common, and I just learned about your cooking today. (laughs) So I'm also a big uh, at-home cook, and I I love to do it. And one of the games I like to play is zero food waste. So we we are always repurposing leftovers, and um, I have two very, very tiny kids. So I'm always trying to find interesting ways to make their meals appear to be more interesting for them so that they won't waste food. Okay. I'm looking at the clock. Boy, are we out of time. Leslie Ann Scorgi, thanks so much for joining us. Bye-bye. Thank you. And that's all the time we have for today. Free for All Friday is coming up tomorrow. I will be here. We will take your calls and your comments then on everything we want to talk about. See you then. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.